You're listening to Lozano Smith's podcast, where we discuss important changes in the law and legal decisions that affect public agencies. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Lozano Smith's podcast. Thank you for joining us today. Again, I'm your host, Sloan Simmons, partner and litigation co-practice group leader out of Lozano Smith's Sacramento office. I have the pleasure, again, of uh, being joined by Jennifer Baldessari, as well as Susan Bishop. Jennifer is one of our uh, senior counsel at the Walnut Creek office. Uh, one of our special education experts. All of you are, I'm sure, back here again to join us for part two of our, our school avoidance discussion. Uh, Ms. Susan Bishop is currently the director of pupil services for the Moraga School District with uh, great experience in the special education realm, whether it's residential or home-based services, public schools, NPSs, SELPAs, you name it. Um, and so we're here again today to finish up our discussion on school avoidance. And I think where we left off, Jennifer, was was leading into, are there any questions that school districts should consider when attendance issues arise? Yeah, we did leave off on that. And I do want to just summarize quickly before we are talking about child find issues and how to seek out and serve and how it's an ongoing and continuous obligation, which is something we will address as this podcast continues. Um, however, when, when looking at questions a district should consider with these attendance issues as they arise, we want to ask ourselves or the IEP team, and maybe both, Um, what is causing the avoidance? I think we really want to get to the root of the issue. Or is there information about why the avoidance is occurring? If there is some information why the avoidance is occurring, we should be asking how current the information is and whether updated information may actually be necessary. Something we had touched on previously was how a student's anxiety in February may actually then progress into depression by May. So even a period of three months, we may not have the most current up-to-date information. So we want to be cognizantly aware of how frequently we need to get updated information and what that looks like. Um, Again, I think we want to ask when the truancy began and how frequently it's occurring so that we can look to see if there are any patterns to the truancy behavior. Perhaps that's another uh, question or issue that we want to consider. But something else um, I want to mention is we really do want to avoid this confirmation bias which is the tendency to interpret new information as confirmation of one's existing beliefs and theories. So some common forms in this setting of confirmation bias um, for school avoidance context includes placing blame on parents or assuming stale facts of the past. It's best for assessors and teachers and parents to really come to the table with an unbiased mind in order to look at the facts in the most objective way. Yeah, that's true. Confirmation bias uh, can be very common, you know, and it can be, um, you know, more of a challenge for emotionally charged issues. I'm recalling a case where a student was, you know, really suffering from a significant illness. And, you know, he was also greatly affected by divorce and custody proceedings, um, you know, and staff really, really, really felt for this, this young man. And in one meeting, we had five attorneys, including the child's own court appointed counsel. And because there were so many stakeholders involved, Um, you know, what we saw was the decision-making moved away from the family and the district, um, you know, kind of this uh, focusing on the student and was really done by the third parties, by the attorneys. Um, In that case, we were able to get the case back on track um, through through frequent meetings and and frequent communication um, with with both parents. But this isn't always the case, especially with with so many attorneys involved. Um, But it's important to note that school staff can be quick to assign new 
information, um, such as dips in attendance or, uh, you know, parents being unresponsive to existing biases, um, you know, such as parents are, you know, they're having trouble um, struggling at home or there's parenting issues. So it's, it's best for assessors and, and IEP teams to remain objective and, and be open-minded and student-focused. Jennifer, before you add on to what Susan just said, I mean, is the, is the, the major concern here that if we don't case by case and kind of refresh our view time after time when it comes to school avoidance, ultimately the risk of failing to appropriately child find and identify student for eligibility, is that kind of the underlying core piece that we're concerned about here? Right. It's really kind of the, you know, the ascribing the reason for it. Well, we know this child's going through, you know, this really difficult uh, thing that, you know, that he may be experiencing, whether it's, you know, illness or, or family issues or something. And, and then we sort of, you know, we, we figured out the why and we stop. So that's what we want to avoid. How does this interact with the increasing use um, by districts around California? And I think around the country, but, but more so perhaps to a greater degree in California, uh, multi-tiered systems of supports where we're providing mental health services and other, other types of supports for students who aren't necessarily identified for, for eligibility under the IDEA, but we're providing those supports. Is that an additional challenge where we have these additional tools that maybe get at some of these issues and perhaps we want to try those first before we take this, the next step to eligibility under the IDEA? Yeah, MTSS, you know, definitely has a role here. Um, you know, I think as, as we're becoming more savvy that, you know, students need to be taught, uh, you know, coping strategies, problem solving, um, you know, districts can can definitely, um, you know, do, do some things universally to, to help students with uh, with these kind of issues. Um, you know, and then any any kind of, you know, more tier two supports, um, you know, uh, groups or any ways to just establish relationships with uh, staff on school, uh, school campuses, um, whether, you know, it's support staff, counseling, counselors, um, all of that goes a long way in these cases. Yeah, and just to add to that, the Ed Code does allow districts the opportunity to utilize general education interventions before jumping automatically to special education. However, we want to be careful in that read of the um, Ed Code because we do have our uh, child find obligation still. And as we know, the Ninth Circuit is telling us that it is an affirmative and ongoing obligation for districts to seek out and serve these children who they suspect of having special needs. So we do, if we do have a suspicion, we can utilize general education interventions. However, there's a point where we do have to then shift our focus to interventions under special education, which means our child find obligation, which means assessing, which means considering those problems um, through a different lens. Also, just to add to what Susan had mentioned before, where these can be challenging under um, emotionally charged issues, we're seeing that sometimes social, emotional, and behavioral issues are comorbid. It's something I had briefly touched on before, but it is um, something to consider this possibility that the two are not mutually exclusive. And when assessing a child for school avoidance, you may want to consider not only assessing under the areas of social emotional, but also assessing under the area of behavioral. A possibility for assessing social emotional is the ERMS assessment, for example. ERM stands for Educationally Related Mental Health Services. That's an assessment that helps parse through the child's social-emotional needs and, again, um, needs to be just as thorough as any other assessment that we complete. And you know, although your district psychologist is qualified to perform an ERMS assessment, um, you, you may want to consider an outside assessor depending on your psychologist's experience with school avoidance, um, his or her comfort level with school avoidance, um, you know, and, and doing home visits. Um, and then also what, uh, what tests, what measures your district, um, you know, already has access to. So um, you'd be looking for, uh, you know, less, less common assessments, things like the child behavior checklist or, or 
family environment skills. Susan, is there specific training or focuses for a school psychologist in earning their degree that, that where they can kind of specialize or become more qualified to address the school avoidance issue? Or is that just a matter of have they over time experienced and addressed and are familiar with the trends and data and background on those subjects? I think it mostly has to do with their experience and their comfort level. I mean, there's certainly trainings available, um, you know, really in conducting the assessments or, or working, um, you know, with, with these more, uh, you know, kind of more clinical, um, you know, background issues, student issues that we're seeing, um, you know, but it's really, it's really about knowing your psychologist and, and talking about the assessment, um, you know, and, and, and being open to the idea of having an outside assessor possibly perform. Jennifer, is this popping up in the due process context? Yeah, actually, that's a great question. In fact, two years ago, Sloan, I had litigated a case for the Rinda Union School District regarding the defensibility of a district-conducted, educationally-related mental health services assessment. And in that case, the assessor was the district school psychologist, so they didn't use an outside individual to come in and conduct that assessment. That school psychologist had only completed one other mental health assessment before in the past. And um, even though that came to light in our due process context, the assessor also interviewed both parents. She um, had interviewed the student's private psychologist. She observed the student in various settings. She provided various testing instruments to the parents, to the student um, herself, to the teacher, and obtained releases of information to speak with any other outside providers. She um, had a lot of questionnaires and information come back to her. So the report was really comprehensive and, and fairly thorough. The family, though, disagreed with the results of the assessment, not necessarily the thoroughness. The district decided to go to due process to uphold that assessment, um, and the decision really found that the assessment was defensible and that this assessor did a particularly good job in assessing the child's mental health needs, even though she had only completed one other educationally related mental health assessment previously. So it is possible to have a school psychologist complete the assessment as long as they are adequately trained in the instruments that they're utilizing with this student, um, as Susan had mentioned before. So I do think we can utilize our school psychologists in these types of assessments as long as they are familiar with the instruments they're um, using to assess. And districts can look to non-public agencies, uh, you know, for mm-hmm. a licensed educational psychologist, possibly with an MFT background um, is, is a, good, a good option. Um, you know, another, another idea um, is to have a nurse conduct a health assessment as well if we suspect there's a contributing health factor for the student. So you're, you're, sorry, just for, and again, I've got my student hat on um, as opposed to the special ed specific, but what, but what I'm hearing is the possibility in a given assessment, not only getting feedback from the school psychologist, but also uh, either directly from a district hired mental uh, marriage or MFT or MHT, as well as your school nurse. You're talking three different aspects all coming into play on this issue. Yes, that's absolutely right. I think um, we're talking uh, behavioral issues. We're talking mental health um, professionals, such as school psychologists, such as counselors, such as um, MFTs, if the district has those um, options available. And we're also talking potentially behavioral um, a behavioral component here, which means we may be getting involved behavioral experts such as um, uh, BCBAs. We may be getting involved behavior technicians who may not be BCBAs but are qualified to observe and take data on behavior um, issues that we're seeing. So yes, we are talking about a whole host of different individuals who can get involved at this point. And it's important for teams to consider information from any outside providers, home mm-hmm. or private. Um, if you know if there's a private behavior technician or a private therapist who is working with or had formerly worked with the child and family. 
Uh, Jennifer, you talked about the the uh, Arenda case. Is there other due process cases that come to mind for you that are relevant in this area? Yeah, I talked about a little bit the Lucy Amar case. We mentioned that earlier. That was uh, the case involving the district who realized there were some school avoidance issues, wanted to assess the student in these school avoidance issues. Um, the family did not consent to that assessment plan. However, we see after this request for assessment was made, the student having more and more attendance issues. Um, so that's a really great example of how to consider assessing and addressing these issues when we're seeing school avoidance. Um, so I would look to the Lucy Amar case when we're talking about how to develop these assessments, what are triggers, because I do think that's a good example. Uh, finally, I think it's helpful for assessors to consider all eligibility categories, not just get bogged down under ED or um, bogged down under something like SLD. I think it's important to also include like other health impairment. So when I say ED, I mean emotional disturbance. When I say SLD, I mean specific learning disability. So these are all eligibility categories that are available to us. I think it's important for assessors to consider all of them, what the ones that would apply. Right, right. Now, you guys have both, both in part one of our discussion and then um, as we've returned here today, you know, been focusing on some of the myths that arise within this school avoidance context. Are there any other myths that districts should be considering when it comes to school avoidance? Yeah, and I think our last myth for today really is an important one, which is all school avoidance cases end up in RTCs. I, I do think this is a pretty prevalent myth. Um, I do think a lot of it is because school avoidance issues seem to be fairly elusive. We're not always sure what they are, why they're existing. Um, we don't always have the most current up-to-date data, which is why we've been driving home the point of assessment. But this is a myth, and I do want to address it. I think um, RTCs, and when I say RTCs, I mean residential treatment centers. I think it's first important to define what I mean by a residential treatment center. And they are generally either in the state or out of the state facilities that provide intensive behavioral supports for children who are displaying mental health or behavioral needs. And we're talking like extreme mental health and behavioral needs that are placed in these residential treatment centers. Uh, we do want to ensure first and foremost inclusion of children so that they have the opportunity to be educated alongside typically developing peers. So when we're talking about the least restrictive environment, we're talking the lesser restrictive environment is a child attending a uh, public school on a comprehensive school campus with the general education population. When we're talking about the continuum of placement options shifting to something less restrictive than that, we are talking about residential treatment centers where it is more of a lockdown facility and the children are receiving very intensive um, supports without a lot of contact with other children um, who are not special needs. So again, we want to consider our uh, continuum of placement options in that regard and um, understand that RTC placements are one of the most restrictive placements on the continuum line. And it is important to understand, Ellery, especially when we're talking about residential treatment centers, I think one thing we want to consider is the cost involved. And there is a cost range here for residential treatment centers if they are out of state upwards from $100,000 to over $200,000 per year per placement per child. So we're talking about very high stakes here. 
Um, and I do think the myth exists because of that. And I can talk about that a little bit more, but wanted to ask Susan if she had anything she wanted to add on this discussion about residential treatment centers. Yeah, just one note on LRE, um, just to keep in mind that, you know, home hospital instruction is often a factor in these cases, especially when there's a medical component or even a mental health component or possibly both. Um, and that, that home hospital instruction is considered more restrictive than an RTC. Um, if you think about it, it's because that typically there's a lack of access to any peers, so not just typically developing peers. Um, they're, they're just, a student is just at home. Um, we know that a district, uh, you know, just as a reminder, a district must have a physician's order with the reason uh, for home hospital instruction, a start date, an end date, and a statement that home hospital instruction is medically necessary. Um, you know, even in that case, if a student has an IEP, the IEP team should, should discuss that recommendation and the potential harmful effects of such a restrictive placement, um, like home instruction or receiving specialized academic instruction at home versus an RTC. Um, and, you know, that's not to say that the team should should recommend or has to go through RTC before home home services, certainly not. Um, you know, there, there might be a plan in place that, that is appropriate um, with a combination of home services if if we see the student is, is making progress. Can I just add, again, as the non-SPED guy in the room right now, that that's a very interesting concept that Susan just raised. And maybe that's widely known in the special ed context, but to me, it's not necessarily intuitive that an HHI placement is more restrictive than an RTC placement. I think there's something about the two that you automatically might assume, at least, I, I don't know, I might have right before until you just said that, Susan, assumed that RTC is more restrictive than HHI, but that makes a ton of sense. You have pupils in the RTC placement and none in home hospital instruction. Uh, yeah, and I think, again, this really speaks to the heart of this myth because when we're talking about more restrictive placements like RTC, like home and hospital, the stakes are a lot higher. So when we're talking about stakes being a lot higher, we're talking about not only in terms of cost, but in terms of the best interests of this child. So is this going to be in the best interest of the child to remove this student so far away from any other typically developing children or in the home hospital setting children at all or individuals at all? So I think that's a question that we want to um, ask ourselves. But why do I think this myth has come into existence I think it's come into existence because a lot of cases actually don't make it to decision. In fact, the cases that are taken to due process tend to be the more higher stake cases, like the home hospital, like the residential treatment center. So when we're seeing a lot of these um, due process published cases come out with a school avoidance component to them, we are also seeing that for some reason, they're dealing a lot with these higher stake issues like residential treatment. So in general, they are asking for residential treatment centers or um, and or the district is disagreeing that with that or the district is wanting to place a child in a residential treatment center. Parents are disagreeing with that. Uh, so we tend to see those be litigated a little bit more often due to the stakes and the costs involved. Jennifer, I know this only because you gave me notes in advance, but the Berkeley Unified case in the Santa Monica Malibu Unified case, you've, you identified uh, as two examples kind of perhaps going different ways as it relates to this subject. Could you give us kind of an overview, explain how those are, are cases that should be looked to to understand this area and perhaps different ways in which districts handle the issue and or ALJs uh, reach decisions on the issue? Yeah. And, you know, uh, specifically the Berkeley Unified case, which was litigated last year, is in fact an example of one of these high stake cases. So just to give an overview, a quick synopsis of what the case looks like, uh, there was a dispute in that case over the student attending a residential treatment center out of state. I believe the treatment center was in Arizona or something to that nature. Uh, the narrative the judge really latched onto was this. Student had attended a private school for ninth grade, decided that in 10th grade, she wanted to then enroll at Berkeley High School. At the time of enrollment, this student had a private assessment 
indicating that she was gifted. So parent, while dur- and during the enrollment process, brought in this assessment report indicating that uh, her child had a private assessment showing that she was a gifted child. So obviously very high um, test scores. However, at the time, the student was also suffering from anxiety and depression and was coping with the loss of her father, who had died just before her 10th grade school year due to cancer. Um, From this decision, it actually appears that the district wasn't made aware of some of these issues, the anxiety, the depression, the loss of the father, until late January when the mother was requesting that the daughter be assessed for special education. So we see mom requesting assessment for special education. We see then all of this information exploding and coming to light that, oh my God, she has anxiety, she has depression, she's coping with the loss of her father. Um, So this really speaks to what Susan had mentioned before, which is we want to make sure that there's open lines of communication and we don't know what we don't know. So if a parent isn't bringing this information to us, then it is challenging for Berkeley in this case to have known that these were issues. First, it was actually clear that the student had friends at Berkeley. So when we're talking about the mom asking for an assessment, During that time, we also know the child had friends at school and even joined a hip-hop dance group on campus. So she was a part of a dance group and and had friends, which is all uh, positive things, indicating that she was benefiting from some sort of interaction with other um, typically developing peers. However, um, the district decided to forward an assessment plan to the parent. You know, mom asked for the assessment plan. District sends the assessment plan to mom. Mom then consents to the assessment plan. However, then three weeks later, mother revokes her consent to the assessment plan and asks then for a 504 plan. So here we have the district beginning to assess the student for these um, issues mom revoking that consent and then asking for a 504 plan instead. Okay, after that revocation, then we start to see student having a more significant decline in attendance issues. So here, um, the judge really latched on to these attendance issues after mom had been Um, revoked the consent to the assessment plan, but I'd like to pause here because it's also clear from the decision that the student had significant attendance issues previously. So she's had attendance issues in her file since like second grade. In fact, they gave an example in the decision where the student would pour boiling hot water on her hand just so that she wouldn't have to attend school. So we're, we're talking pretty significant issues. Um, and despite this, the judge categorized the school avoidance issues that occurred following the revocation of the assessment plan consent as, quote, new attendance issues and determined that these newly emerging issues were sufficient grounds to reinitiate the district's offer to assess under its continuing and ongoing um, child find obligations. So specifically, this case points out a few things. That the attendance became increasingly erratic following mom's revocation of consent to the assessment plan, so we know that. Um, And that the last two months of the 10th grade school year for this girl, she had only attended two days. So when we're talking about erratic attendance issues, I mean, it, it is pretty severe, it seems, in this case. So now we have student in an out-of-state residential treatment center. We have a re-signed assessment plan, and we have the district then obligated to assess the student who is attending an out-of-state residential treatment center. So it's challenging to assess a child who is out of state first and foremost, and we know that we have the 60-day assessment timeline. Here, mother was bringing the student back 
to California on a monthly basis, however, was not making the student available in California for assessment. Even though that was the case, the judge had interpreted these facts to say that Berkeley was obligated to assess within the 60 days, notwithstanding the fact that student was in an out-of-state residential treatment placement. So here we see the district had lost the case, but it's important to keep in mind that sometimes the decision doesn't include every fact that was litigated in the case. So all we know from this decision is what is written in in, uh, this decision by the judge. So that's what we're going on. That's what we're interpreting. Um, I do think that uh, specifically here, we want to keep in mind that attendance alone may trigger the child find obligation because the judge did also mention that child find obligations could be triggered with a more significant uh, school avoidance issue, such as what was happening here. Even though the child had school avoidance in her history, the newly emerging school avoidance issues with her not coming to school and only going to school for the last two months of school for two days was significant. So Jennifer, on on this, so ultimately the judge is saying, Berkeley, you need to travel out to Arizona, even if mom's not making the child available when home during the weekends. Based upon the attendance data that you were seeing uh, toward the end of the student's enrollment at Berkeley, those facts alone can drive a child find trigger. And if mom's not making the student available when she comes back to California, time to jump on a plane and get out there. Yes, exactly. That's our two main takeaway points that I think, legally speaking, are significant. We have the child find trigger alone being the school avoidance issue. And we have our 60-day timeline, even though the child is in a residential treatment center that is out of state, we may be obligated as a school system to fund somebody traveling out to a residential treatment center to assess the student within our 60-day timeline. And not to do that could be a failure um, to assess. You know, in that procedural setting, Jennifer, what what ultimately did the court, did the judge award uh, when it came, the ALJ, when it came to remedies in light of that, that kind of scenario where the issue is whether or not you need to get out there and assess? Yeah, the judge did award reimbursement for past tuition at the residential treatment center because what the judge determined was a failure in Berkeley's child find obligations. What is interesting here is we didn't see an award of any prospective placement in a residential treatment center. So an award of prospective placement would obligate the district to continue the placement into the future. So we're not seeing a future award of, well, hey, district, you need to maintain this child in this Arizona out-of-state treatment center. Actually, the judge seems to leave that up to the parents in the district to make the determination after assessments are completed to find out what is the appropriate placement here. I think many of these cases of school avoidance involve really bright kids. Um, We're seeing average, uh, you know, mostly even above average standardized test scores, students presenting as gifted, um, with gifted scores, even uh, twice exceptional or 2E as they're called students. And, you know, this uh, important note for districts is this can contribute to, you know, lack of action or or unresponsiveness on the the district's part when we see these things, um, you know, because it it doesn't fit with, you know, many people's typical um, schema of what a child with a disability um, you know, you know, might 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 be like, um, you know, and similarly with with the student in Berkeley, um, you know, she was social and you know, and definitely had friends, and so it also doesn't fit with you know, kind of the isolation or the social isolation part. So I think it's important to know that um, you know, all students have strengths and and some of these positive things like you know, like high standardized scores and and social strengths and um, you know, even joining groups and and you know, doing things that might seem uh, very positive and, and like a turnaround even. Um, Um, you know, there's still cause for concern. It seems like, Susan, in some of these cases, I could see districts being incredibly frustrated about these cases. 
if they're not considering the full picture that you just described, right? It's very easy to perhaps assume, well, look, students has friends, students doing great academically. How in the world can we be missing a child find obligation here? Um, so I, I don't know if there's an answer to, for districts in that respect other than diligence, 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 but it's, it's tough. Yeah, and the cases vary so much, and they can be emotional for staff. Um, you know, it can be frustrating, you know, when, when you feel like you're always pursuing communication, um, you know, if families are less than communicative. So, uh, yeah, they, they are very tricky cases. So, Jennifer, what about this Santa Monica Malibu Unified case, you know, perhaps as something to compare to, to Berkeley Unified? Yeah, it's actually a very interesting counter case to the Berkeley case. Um, Santa Monica Malibu Unified School District litigated last year this case, and it drives home the point that not all school avoidance cases end in residential placement, as was the myth that we had talked about earlier. So in that case, the student had a history of anxiety, depression, and school phobia. He was placed at Malibu High School and had profound attendance issues. So the judge literally used the words profound attendance issues. He also had work completion issues and because of that failing grades and because of that, it was causing more depression and that was causing anxiety So we're seeing this child in a very severe negative feedback cycle that is causing more attendance issues, more attendance issues, more anxiety, more attendance issues. Um, And parent here argued that the school avoidance was due to the district's failure to provide appropriate supports. However, the case actually explains that Santa Monica Malibu had what they called a STEP program which is a program for students who are suffering with mental health needs or school avoidance issues in order to put in place embedded supports and services to help the student get back into school and be successful. So they actually had a program to help support and facilitate students getting back into school and help um, their mental health population um, students who have these needs. Although this program was offered to the family, the parent rejected the district's offer and unilaterally placed the child in a private school, then sought reimbursement for that private school by the district. So we see the mom placing the student in a private school and then saying, hey, district, you're going to fund this private school District refused to fund it. Now we're in litigation stages. Parent files for due process. But following that unilateral placement, the district then changed its offer to the parent and offered a non-public school setting because it had found out that the student was doing really well in this private school with smaller class sizes. And because student was doing really well in this private school with smaller class sizes, the district took that information, considered it as part of its IEP team obligations, and decided to offer something similar like a non-public school that had small class sizes. Um, And parent still refuses to send the student to that um, non-public school. So here we uh, see the district litigating The issue, the result of that case was that despite the, quote, profound attendance issues, the non-public school that the district did offer was appropriate to address the needs of the student. So again, we should um, think about this on a case-by-case basis, but it does provide a good juxtaposition between the Berkeley case and the Santa Monica Malibu case where some of these even profound attendance issues can be addressed through supports within the school setting, as well as supports maybe even at the non-public school level, which is less restrictive than a residential treatment center would be. Susan, you had indicated kind of what you saw as the, the big takeaways from Berkeley Unified. As you look at both the Berkeley case and the Santa Monica Malibu, is there anything else you would emphasize as you're, you're making, uh, reading those, those due process decisions and, and kind of concluding what your takeaways would be? 
Yeah, um, you know, Santa Monica Malibu has, you know, the STEP program and, you know, many districts may not have a program um, like that. Um, but, you know, districts can be responsive and they can, um, you know, really develop an individualized program, you know, given how a student presents. Um, it's really looking at things like individual and group counseling, family counseling. Um, you know, uh, these, these are things that are available to districts, even if they're not, you know, through district staff, through non-public agencies, um, but really working to develop an individualized plan and, and, you know, not coming at it from the idea of, you know, well, we don't do that here or we, or we can't, we can't provide that. Um, and that might involve providing, or, you know, really planning and providing some staff training um, on, you know, what those supports could look like and, and thinking outside of the box. So both of you are putting on your, your fully practical hat. You're on the ground. You're working together from the district side, from legal counsel side. You've collected all the facts regarding the student, current attendance issues, previous attendance issues, family structure issues, family issues, student-related specific triggers, et cetera, et cetera. You've got all that data, that info. What approach do you take now? Yeah, I mean, if I could boil it down to something very basic – there are essentially three tracks that we can consider, or even a combination of one or two of these tracks. Um, those tracks would be, first, the general education track, which includes the SARB process and other truancy measures that are in place for districts. The second track would include the IEP track, and the third track would be the 504 track. So I'd like to first start by maybe discussing the IEP track, um, and I'd like to ask Susan where she generally starts when considering an IEP assessment. Sure. Well, the first step is to determine if the student is eligible or, or if the student should remain eligible for special education. And as Jen said earlier, it's important to consider all eligibility, eligibility categories here, not just um, emotional disturbance. And so once the team establishes that the student is eligible, um, we move into the discussion of goals. And it's important for IEP goals in the case of school avoidance to address the root issue instead of just the attendance. And that's not to say we don't address the attendance with goals at all. That might be appropriate. But if we're not addressing the root cause, like anxiety, for example, it's likely to manifest itself in other ways. So good goals, um, you know, might be in using coping strategies or uh, engaging in positive talk about school. And then teams should also consider more individualized goals. And so in the Santa Monica Malibu Unified case, um, there were some, some really good examples of goals where, uh, and remember the district prevailed in, on, on all issues in this case, um, the counseling goals addressed, um, for one thing, the student's inability to discuss personal responsibility, um, also the student's inability to process social-emotional issues, the student's um, ability to identify underlying feelings related to school avoidance and and also to task completion. And there were goals um, requiring the student to report on times when he effectively used coping strategies. So, you know, these are examples of beautifully individualized, rigorous goals. So once the team develops, you know, a good set of goals that are addressing the, the root cause, um, the team moves into the discussion of services. So we're talking about things like specialized academic instruction and uh, possibly individual, group, and family counseling um, or parent counseling. And these services may be home-based and they might even be daily. Um, the, the point here is to think outside of the box. So outside of the traditional 30 minutes weekly or even 60 minutes weekly, those may not be appropriate. And, and your staff may support with this beforehand, uh, with support with thinking outside of the box. Um, we should consider services before school, possibly, to help the transition to school, uh, maybe even after school if that's appropriate. Um, we want to make sure we're making the service recommendations commensurate with the degree of school avoidance that, that we're seeing. Um, and these services might seem really intense, um, but, but keep in mind they might be short-term or, or not annual. You're not really, you know, locked into to annual services here. You know, the goal is to promote the gradual reintegration and systematic desensitization in returning to school. Um, and, you know, as, as you see progress and you check in, um, you know, that's, that's something that might not be continuing for a year. Always learning new terminology in the field of education law. Susan, you just said, uh, the, the, the phrase is gradual reintegration or system, systemic desensitization. 
Do I got that right in terms of terms? Mm-hmm. Syst- systematic desensitization. Yeah, back back to school. So what's that look like? Yeah, so some examples. Um, so a child um, might tolerate riding to school, uh, you know, just, just getting to school and possibly um, having a staff member um, greet, greet the child in the car. And then that might be it for the day. That might be the beginning baby step. Um, the Santa Monica Malibu case had a nice example of this where it was two general education teachers that, um, you know, asked the parent to contact them when, when, um, when she arrived at school, uh, you know, with the child in the car if the child wouldn't get out. Um, some other examples, um, you know, a child might attend school uh, in the office or, you know, another space uh, on campus, a conference room, for example, and have uh, one or more teachers come in for a visit, uh, might even have peers come in uh, for a visit. Perhaps the child could then attend one or more classes or spend a small amount of time in the classroom. Um, some other ideas, a child visiting the school campus outside of school hours or even attending a school event outside of school hours. Um, just walking the schedule at school, um, and then possibly even just having friends visit the child at, at home or, or even another location close to school, like, like a park. Um, but the point is there are many baby steps along the way, and, and teams should be um, checking in and really celebrating this incremental progress and adjusting services and possibly goals accordingly as, as we see success uh, you know, on, these, on, on this process. That's a, some very sound, practical advice, Susan. If, if we're talking about those, that range, which seemed to be a full range of very specific and nuanced approaches to services, what should districts be watching out for when developing IEPs for students with these types of needs? Yeah, there are a few things that districts can learn from recent decisions. Um, the first one is is really to avoid rote services. Um, you know, if a district is just offering the 30-minute weekly and not taking into account the student's level, uh, you know, of possibly anxiety or depression um, or, you know, its impact on school attendance um, and, and other factors, um, we, want, we want to avoid that. We want to make sure that our services um, are, are really matching um, the goals and that the goals are, are thorough enough and, and comprehensive enough that, that match how the student is presenting. Um, the other area is not addressing academics. Um, so, you know, you, while you might have a student with, with uh, gifted scores, we really need to look at the student's access to curriculum and their academic performance and their ability to participate um, in curriculum. Um, so, so academic goals, you know, ab- might absolutely be appropriate and necessary. So, so your teams need to discuss that and don't, don't fall into the trap of, um, you know, just looking at standardized academic scores and, and thinking that, uh, you know, academics are not an area of need. Um, so, you know, just in general, beware of IEPs that are, uh, you know, kind of too light or the light version of goals and services or IEPs that resemble 504 plans. Jennifer, you said three tracks, general ed track, IEP track, and number three. That would be the 504 track. So while Section 504 eligibility really could be its own podcast, I'm just going to make a quick point that it's important to remember here Accommodations to support school attendance can be part of a 504 plan, which can include individual counseling, parent counseling, maybe even some home instruction. All of that can be part of a student's 504 plan. Well, heck, if we were talking about that, we, we took two, two parts for us just to get through this much. We might be on for another two hours if we were talking 504 too. You guys, this has been, a, a, I think, a really practical important and effective discussion. I think this is going to be really helpful for our listeners. Now, you know, I may be biased in that regard, but um, I want to ask you two kind of takeaway conclusory questions to get your thoughts and we'll, we'll close up this part two of our discussion on school avoidance. One is, and, and you guys can take these as you wish, but one would be, you know, this whole discussion has been framed. I'm kind of highlighting some of the myths that are out there. So if you could recap those myths. And then I would say, of course, what are the takeaways from you two that uh, are most important for school districts, SELPAs, county offices of education that are having to measure these school avoidance issues with an eye toward general ed, IEP, and 504 tracks? Sure. Yeah, we debunked a few myths. Um, the first one um, being that uh, school avoidance only occurs among high school age children. No, we know that it occurs um, in much younger children, even elementary, um, possibly even with you know a student's initial transition into school, like in kindergarten. Um, we also discussed how school avoidance, you know, is not always linked to anxiety. Um, there are many, many, <laughs> many, many factors um, that can be triggers. 
The other two myths I had addressed, which were it's not a problem when it comes to general education students, which again isn't true. We want to consider both special education and general education students, but also our obligations under child find, as we had talked about. The last myth was that these types of cases, and by these types of cases, I mean school avoidance cases, tend to end in residential treatment, which again is not true. I think we see that more in the litigation context because we're talking high stakes cases are brought before the Office of Administrative Hearings. So we see more of these residential treatment center cases published than other cases. However, we do want to keep in mind our continuum of placement options considering the least restrictive environment. And our takeaways? So our takeaways for today, one is to proactively get to the root of the problem by gathering the information that you need, which could mean assessing, it could mean talking to stakeholders here, maybe even outside providers. Yeah, we want to be innovative and avoid inside-the-box thinking, um, even when it comes to who's performing the assessment, what assessments we're using, um, and then in developing, uh, you know, what what counseling supports look like, um, you know, and, and what we're going to address with goals for a student. You know, another takeaway is we want to ask ourselves what measures we can put in place to ensure proper attendance. I just talked a little bit about those three tracks. So in each of these three tracks, there are measures that we can use to address the root of the issue. So what is the barrier to attendance and how can we address that? For example, should we be modifying an IEP? Should we be creating a 504 plan? Should we be thinking about using SARB as a stick and a carrot. And I think finally, we want to make sure uh, to communicate with site teams com- and, and have communication with parents about attendance, um, you know, our attendance policies and procedures, um, make sure school site staff and, and you know, and everyone um, that's involved with students, um, you know, knows about school avoidance and, and the procedures, um, just being as proactive as possible and, and focusing on establishing, maintaining relationships with families and, and with students. Um, we know that reintegration will likely be easier. If, if we see school avoidance and we may be able to uh, avoid a more restrictive placement. Thanks, guys. This is really good stuff. Jennifer Baldessari from our Walnut Creek office. Special thanks to Susan Bishop, Director of Pupil Services of the Moraga School District. We appreciate both of you, especially you, Susan. You're one of our few outsiders who have come in to participate in the Lozano Smith podcast. I remind everybody that if you have just listened to part two, go back and listen to part one. Put it all together. Uh, as to everybody, thank you to our listeners for tuning in again to Lozano Smith's podcast. We encourage you to visit our podcast page at lozanosmith.com forward slash podcast to find links and additional details on this and other topics that we have discussed today and on other days. Please make sure you also subscribe so you don't miss an episode. Jennifer, Susan, have a great day. Thank you. Thank you. If you have any questions about this topic, please contact the hosts of this episode or an attorney at any of our eight offices throughout California. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. As the information contained in this podcast is necessarily general, its application to a particular set of facts and circumstances may vary. For this reason, this podcast does not constitute legal advice. We recommend that you consult with your counsel prior to acting on the information you heard.